We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this episode, we travel to the future, a small farm future. That's the title of a new book from farmer and social scientist Chris Smage. Let's be honest, the future doesn't look great. Our climate is changing rapidly, our soils are being depleted, the global population is surging, our health is falling apart, and despite some progress with renewable energy, we're still very much addicted to cheap fossil fuels. It's a bleak picture that Smage paints in his new book, and while he doesn't offer an optimistic Pollyanna vision for our future, Smage does believe that humans can continue to thrive if only we're willing to radically reshape the way we think about communities and economies. Chris is a farmer himself in southwest England, and he has a durable vision for a resilient and relocalized future built around small peasant farms. But before we get to that interview, we have something a little different. We're starting a new monthly segment for the Tractor Time podcast. We're calling it Transition Land, and it's a partnership between Acres USA and Rodale Institute. The idea is to help farmers looking to transition from conventional farming to a more regenerative approach. And we'll do this by tapping into the deep wealth of knowledge on staff at Rodale. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Carl Rocher. He has a PhD in microbiology and biochemistry, and he's the research director of the Rodale Institute Midwest Organic Center just outside of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He recently wrote a column in the December issue of the Acres USA magazine describing the scientific work being done there. And he's serious about what he does to help farmers. So serious, in fact, that in lieu of a more formal greeting, Dr. Rocher had this to say. Can we just talk about some cool science for a change? Okay, so you can see where his priorities are. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Carl Rozier. Rodale's at the forefront of research and education in organic no-till farming systems. And I think a lot of people associate uh, Rodale with its home in Pennsylvania, but it, it now has operations or outposts all over the country. So talk about some of this like missionary organic work you're doing in the Midwest right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really great. So we're definitely expanding across the country into a lot of different areas. You know, my research center here in the Midwest I'm located in Iowa, and then we have uh, another outpost or what we call regional resource centers or organic centers, I think is another one in um, Georgia. And then we have one in Southern California as well. So mine, or the one that I work at, the MOC or uh, so the Midwest Organic Center, boots on the ground here, August 2019. Um, we spent the first six months, I think, till the growing season hit, just what we called the listening tour, you know, trying to meet with as many farmers and other nonprofits or, or folks interested in organic farming in the region to kind of get a feel for the pulse of what was, what was going on here in the Midwest and what was needed in terms of research. A lot of our goal is to provide assistance, you know, and, and fill those niches where and to work collaboratively with other um, associations so that, you know, kind of like a rising tide raises all boats. Um, and then we just completed our first uh, growing season. The real mission of the center is to, is to really try and connect with farmers across the spectrum. 
we're in our own echo chamber. We're talking to organic farmers all the time. You know, I'd really like to talk to conventional farmers that are thinking about this, you know, that might or might be on the fence or think it's complete BS. And let's let's have a conversation and try and find some opportunities to agree. Well, I love the idea of, of, of science in service of, of farming. I'm curious to know more about how you started putting the pieces together that you could help. What did that look like? What I love most about farmers is they're, they're scientists. They're trying stuff all the time. You know, they, they, you know they, they don't have the full backing of Rodale Institute like I have, and they, don't, they can't fail, right? You can't do acres and acres of something and not have it work where I can, you know, I can run something and maybe it doesn't work and we learn from it. In fact, I enjoy failure. We learn more from failure than we do from success because you can just be lucky and succeed. Failure is the true problems arise, the nuances that you may not have considered arrive in failure. So to me, that's what we're built to do. I had my, I really tried to come into this with, I didn't want to march in here with like, I'm interested in this, this, and this subject. And that's what I'm going to go do. Because I mean, I'm a microbial ecologist. I really want to look at microbes. I really want to look at carbon. I really want to look at nitrogen. But, you know, that farmer that's trying to produce, you know, 200 bushel corn per acre, they may not be, they're trying to get that yield right. So then it was like, well, how do I marry these ideas? Like, how do I take the stuff that they're interested in and show them that, you know, they can still be profitable, but at the same time, apply management practices that can um, do both, right? So we can do these management practices that preserve the soil, that increase soil health, that increase soil um, productivity, but at the same time, you can hit that 200 bushel corn. I'm, I'm curious, what is your elevator pitch to a conventional farmer on why they should care about biology in the soil? to me it comes down it comes down to profitability and inputs you know because that's what most conventional farmers are going to talk to you about they're they're it's profitability and and what what can we do so if, if i my elevator so i would say well look you could change if you cover cropped right with a legume and you know you got that biological fixation bump from whatever legume you pick you know that's going to give you more nitrogen that you can add to the soil you maybe pump on less anhydrous, or maybe you don't have to pump anhydrous on at all. Let's just start with one practice. Let's start with one thing that you think you could do and improve soil health. I can show you where you could be more profitable. Just by maybe you don't run as much steel over your land. Maybe you pump a little less anhydrous. Maybe the water quality in your region's a little bit better because you did something different. We can, and it, and it doesn't have to be nitrogen. It could be a pesticide. I mean, the things that we're doing to biodiversity of insects as a result of using neonics is scary. It's on the level of DDT. I think at some point we're really going to have to look at that. The, the research that's coming out is really kind of, it's alarming to me. You know, if, if I can get you to plant, you know, pollinator rows or maintain a buffer strip or something like that, I can probably, we can talk about how you can be more profitable, right? And most farmers are stewards of the land. They want to, they want to manage that and pass that on to somebody. They take great pride in that. And I think sometimes as researchers, we're not very good at tapping into that and saying that we're on your team as well. You know, we're here, I'm not here to tell you how to do it. I'm here to help you 
figure out how to do it. And you tell me what you can do and I'll tell you what'll work and what won't. And we'll go from there. Carl, thanks for being with us. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. If you have any questions for Carl or anyone else at Rodale, email those to me at btrollinger at acresusa.com and you just might get an answer on future episodes. For more information on Rodale Institute, visit their website, rodaleinstitute.org. I want to take this moment to introduce our new sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across all online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this. Farmers that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data shows farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Okay. Chris Smage. For the last 15 years, Smage has run a small farm in Somerset, England. Before that, he worked as a social scientist at University of Surrey and Goldsmiths College. His focus is the practice and politics of agroecology, and he's written about that subject for publications such as The Land, Dark Mountain, Permaculture Magazine, Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems, and the Journal of Consumer Culture. Smage writes the Small Farm Future blog and is a featured author at resilience.org. He has a new book out with Chelsea Green Publishing. It's called A Small Farm Future, Making the Case for a Society Built Around Local Economies, Self-Provisioning, Agricultural Diversity, and a Shared Earth. I was really impressed by the amount of thought Smage has put into actually working out some of the ideas we in the regenerative agriculture world take for granted. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Tractor Time. Hi, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with the ghost of Thomas Malthus. He still haunts the way we think about matters of population. Talk about the Malthusian trap and how this continues to color our thinking about population growth and food. There's different ways of talking about Malthus. Um, you, you know, the one that a lot of people are familiar with is the idea that um, you know, we're in overshoot and, um, uh, you know, the population has, um, is outstripping our ability to provide resources. So, um, you know, the need is for us to cut population numbers. And, you know, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's a little bit more complicated than that. But there's also a notion of a sort of Malthusian trap that, um, uh, you know, whenever a human population historically produces a little bit of surplus what what we do with that is produce more of ourselves and that's been you know and that, that, so there's been a sort of check and a balance um you know that's the way it works kind of the way it works in in the populations of wild animals and the argument is that finally at last with the coming of in industrialization we've sort of got out of that trap and i guess i look at that a little bit critically in the book, um, partly because it has got us into a whole bunch of other traps. And I think, you know, clearly the way that the, the sort of whole package of 
modern industrialism, um, you know, stalled growth, climate change, soil, water issues, huge issues of social inequality and so on. Um, you know, it's kind of taken us into a whole bunch of other traps. So, um, you know, that's kind of a theme of the book in general is that there's always trade-offs, you know, any, anything that we do um, has knock-on consequences that, you know, that we then need to, to, to reckon with. Right. You write in the book that population growth is a problem, but not the problem. In fact, you outline 10 crises that we face on a global scale. Talk a little bit about those crises. Um, well, I mean, the, the sort of drift of the, 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 the way I cover it in the book is, you know, there are various kind of immediate underlying crises, you know, climate change is obviously a very big one that we all spend a lot of time quite rightly um, worrying about. And that is driven basically by directly or indirectly by our use of fossil fuels. And, you know, it's kind of interesting in agriculturally because it, it you know, there's a kind of direct indirect pathways as well in terms of, you know, the way that fossil fuels uh, enable um, biofuel production or livestock use or, or whatever. Uh, and, you know, a whole bunch of other issues, of course, that we talk about in the agricultural sector, um, soil, water and so on. But then um, the, the sort of crises that I move on to sort of in, in the later part of that sequence are more socioeconomic crises, um, the sort of the global economic system and and, I, and it's it's ultimately it's a political system not just a, an economic system it's a way that we choose to organize the world and ultimately that has um, a, a kind of history and, and, a, and a culture behind it so you know I talk about um, uh, proximal and underlying uh, crises uh, in that section of the book and you know in some ways the sort of the more obvious things soil climate change, water, and so on are the, um, the, the immediate, the proximal crises, but underlying that are kind of human crises, cultural, perhaps even spiritual crises about the way that we organize ourselves and the way that we relate to the, to the world. So I, I sort of set the stall out in that early part of the book by sort of going along that trajectory from the, you know, from the immediate um, proximal material crises that we face to the deeper underlying uh, economic, political, cultural, and ultimately spiritual crises. The dominant economic and social narrative of the last century or so has been a mass migration from rural areas to urban centers. And this has been happening on a global scale. And it's often branded as a success story about increasing prosperity. What's wrong with that picture, especially now? Well, I mean, I think that, that, that there's two things wrong with it. One is that I would slightly question, as you say, it, it is presented as a success story, and I certainly wouldn't uh, claim that there's no element of success to it. But in some ways, it you know, it hasn't. Um, yeah, you know, I would sort of slightly contest that narrative in the sense that kind of what's happened in farming historically is, you know, certainly one argument is what's happening now in other economic sectors uh, like manufacturing, where technological development essentially sort of gets rid of the human labor, um, you know, so part of the part of this, uh, you know, that that big migration that you talk about isn't necessarily people deciding to quit the farm and um, wanting to move to the city um it's basically being undercut um 
by um, a, a sort of global commodity technological um, export agriculture. You know, certainly that, that's one thing where implicitly and explicitly subsidized mechanized agricultures in the richer countries have undercut um, the production of basic commodities in the poorer countries and that's pushed small-scale farmers either into um, a sort of tropical commodity production you know growing coffee or fruit or whatever and being very very exposed to global market fluctuations or getting out of farming altogether and, and taking their chances in the city and and you know part of you know the narrative we have is often that uh, getting out of farming and going to the city makes people wealthier but that isn't necessarily the case you know over and over again we see that um the uh labor exit from one sector doesn't necessarily um uh, you know employment doesn't necessarily magically appear in another sector so there's a lot of um uh, precarity you know a lot of underemployment um and a lot of misery, as, as we know, in, in, in big cities globally. So, you know, one part of the story, I think, is to contest that narrative a little bit. But the other part of the story is to say, you know, even if that has been true historically, when we look at the situation facing us now, it almost certainly isn't going to be true in the future. You know, that mass migration, that urbanisation really has been enabled by the the availability of cheap and abundant fossil fuels you know we know we've got to stop using fossil fuels um you know can we create a low carbon energy economy um where uh, energy is as cheap and abundant as it has been historically with fossil fuels um, i mean obviously that's a debate that uh, people are having but it seems to me very questionable whether that's the case um and, you know, a whole bunch of other issues to do with uh, economic inequality, um, you know, the way that we farm, again, those, you know, those material, but also those cultural, political, economic issues that I think are going to mean that we're going to have to de-urbanise, re-ruralise um, to a greater or lesser degree. And, you know, that's not going to be an easy thing to do at all. But, um, you know, the sooner we, you know, we bite that bullet, I think the better. You have a graph in the book that shows fossil fuel consumption over time, and it continues to increase. Meanwhile, you have a thin film of alternative energy sources on the top of that, but that really hasn't changed our consumptive habits globally, um, these alternative energy sources. Talk a little bit about that. Um, in the book, you talk about energy begets energy. Explain that concept a little bit. and and also extrapolate maybe where that's heading. Right, well, I mean, you know, we are using more low carbon um, sources of energy than we used to. And, um, you know, but basically hydroelectric power or um, wind and solar uh, or nuclear. And obviously we can debate the, the rights and wrongs of those different forms of low carbon power. But yeah, what, what I show in that graph, uh, I mean, yeah, it wasn't me that, um, you know, the, the you can find that 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 data in many sources, but I presented it on the basis of um, the BP data. Um, but yeah, you know, it's true that we're using more of that um, low carbon energy now than we were, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but we're actually using more fossil energy as well. So that the, um, the low carbon energy is an addition rather than a replacement. You know, we're not 
um, getting out of fossil fuel use. And what's driving that essentially is the, the growth economy. You know, uh, the, the, the way it works is um, that um, in order for the economy to sort of um, keep firing, um, you know, you need to have return on investment and that has to have a, a sort of material manifestation of, of some sort. So the, um, you know, some energy experts sort of talk about it in terms of energy seems to beget energy. Um, but clearly, you know, we're not just burning energy for fun. Um, you know, there's a material trace to it. And what it is, is, um, you know, the growing global economy, um, you know, the need to keep producing more, to finding new markets, producing more things, um, commoditizing and bringing more people into circuits of global commodity exchange. And that is clearly not sustainable, uh, you know, in present terms with, uh, with high carbon, with fossil fuel energy. And, you know, my argument in the book is, you know, yeah, maybe we could replace that with low carbon energy. I think that's very unlikely. But, you know, we then we hit all sorts of other uh, issues, you know, um, whether it's um, uh, sort of water use, soil loss, uh, phosphorus availability, you know, whatever. So, um, you know, I think we need to think a little bit more laterally or a little bit more deeply and and sort of address the the underlying cultural and spiritual grounds for that kind of endless growth economy that we, um, you know, increasingly are, are, are is causing us problems and we're, we're kind of hitting the buffers with. There's an ongoing debate on whether or not small organic farms can feed the world, which is now approaching 8 billion people. Um, I think your book answers or perhaps addresses this debate more thoroughly than any source I've seen. How does it work and why do we have such a hard time believing in the possibility of a small farm future? I mean, I, I think, you know, one issue is that when we talk, when we, when we have this debate about can organic farming feed the world, you know, there's, there's kind of, um, yeah, there's different ways of defining organic farming. And I think what people have in mind is, pretty much the present world that we have of, um, you know, a very highly urbanized world, as you were saying earlier, very mechanized farming, you know, large scale organic farming. So, um, you know, we're, we're talking about growing a lot of legumes, um, you know, a lot of fossil fuel inputs going into the farm and the distribution, uh, you know, the whole, the, the, the whole sort of, um, uh, farm to fork network whereas when I'm talking about organic farming in my book I'm thinking much more of a kind of closed loop um, cycling of nutrients and inevitably that you know goes back to ruralization people by and large living uh, in in more rural settings much more people um, involved directly in farming whether that's um, you know backyard gardening or or homesteading or commercial farming, you know, but but smaller scale, um, more localized, and then much more sort of looping of nutrients, and also you know issues about what are we eating? Uh, you know, you get into the whole livestock and meat issue. Uh, I mean, in my book, I, I certainly on a small scale, low impact farming basis, I think um, there's there's definitely a strong case for livestock, but not really, you know, it's really the, the meat eating is kind of skimming off the surface of the way that the livestock are feeding into the larger labour of the farm. So we would be eating less meat and milk than we are at present. And, you know, that's another aspect of the sort of argument that organic farming can't feed the world you know that's probably true if we're eating um, meat at the levels that we do here in Europe or in the US 
but not with a lower level of consumption. So, you know, I, I, it's hard to say, um, you know, can organic farming feed the world? I mean, I don't know. Um, you know, possibly there's a case for some synthetic fertilizer in, in certain situations. Uh, if there is, um, it's almost certain that that fertilizer shouldn't be being used in, uh, you know, a country uh, where I live, like the UK or the US, it should be being used by poor farmers in, for example, parts of sub-Saharan Africa with poor soils and you know, all the rest of it. So there's a kind of uh, a fertilizer equity issue that I touch on briefly in the book. Um, but, you know, we can make do with far, far less synthetic fertility and the underlying fossil energy input into that than we currently are if we are much more thoughtful uh, and much more localized in our farming. Your book is not a memoir, to be clear. It's a dense and philosophical text about economics and ecology. Um, but I am interested in hearing more about you and your background. You're a right. small, small farmer yourself and a social scientist. Yeah, well, I guess my story is that um, I studied anthropology originally at, at, uh, at university, um, thought I might um, pursue a career in that. And I was kind of interested in peasant farming back then and did a little bit of research. And I suppose I was, uh, you know, the funny thing looking back at it now is that I didn't actually know anything about farming. Um, I was kind of interested from a more intellectual point of view, kind of in the way that um peasant farmers do or or in some cir circumstances don't fit into the, the the global economy and obviously you know part of that you'll see is sort of carried forward into the book but anyway I, I sort of went down that road a little bit and then got involved in in doing various other things um uh, you know various other types of social science research and then I guess in my uh, mid-30s uh you could call it a early onset midlife crisis maybe or I, you know, started thinking more seriously about food and farming and obviously, uh, you know, this was in the late 1990s when people were starting to talk more seriously about climate change and, and some of the sorts of environmental issues we were butting up against. Um, and I found out a bit about permaculture, sort of got interested in gardening, kind of, I, I suppose it's the way my mind works, it's always thinking about the you know how things fit into larger loops and cycles that I kind of suddenly mm -hmm. felt this lack in my life of of growing and farming and gardening and yeah to cut a long story short um, my wife and I we, we moved um, out of the city and ended up um, here in Somerset uh, about 100 miles to the west of London bought ourselves um, uh, a, a small well, it was kind of bare land you know originally we kind of wanted a perhaps a kind of house with a garden homestead kind of scenario but we couldn't really afford that so we ended up buying this piece of bare land and kind of got involved in a whole lengthy project to move on to it involve other people in it and so yeah for the past 20 odd years um, I've been here um, focusing more or less on that still feeling like I'm very much a novice farmer you know plenty to learn but yeah basically we've um, you know we've set up a small local uh, market garden um, veg box scheme as we call it here so we grow veg and sell it to people locally various other things going on on the site um, both in terms of people but also um, uh, you know a little bit of livestock pasture um, trees and so on 
Um, so yeah, you know, that I, I don't talk about that in great detail in the book because um, I guess, you know, maybe when I got into it, I was a little bit naive and thought, um, you know, I'll come here and start farming. And, um, you know, you talked about the sort of the, the, the memoir sort of thing about how, you know, people move to the country and have a great life. And, and you know, in many ways, it is a great life. But, you know, when you try and do it commercially, and, and you know, when you're selling veg in competition with, um, you know, all the other people growing veg around the world, and, um, you know, the cheapness of all the global transport networks, it kind of confronts you with a whole bunch of issues about, you know, uh, about fossil fuel use, about global commodity prices that, you know, sort of draws you back into these problems with the, the, the global economy. And the book is very much about that, really, you know, how we can transition mm -hmm. from where we're at, um, you know, economically and materially into, um, you know, in, in, into a, a more sustainable rural worlds. And I try not to, you know, I try and emphasize uh, the good aspects of those more ruralized, more local worlds without being too starry eyed about it. You know, there's all sorts of reasons, um, all sorts of problems and trade-offs that we need to confront. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hi, this is Cade from Barn to Door. We're excited to be sharing a new series of Farmer Spotlights during the Tractor Time podcast in segments like these. Today's Farmer Spotlight is Grant Sheeter of Sheeter Cloverleaf Dairy. In 2020, Grant launched a Facebook poll to his customers, asking for their thoughts on offering direct delivery on their products. The response was majorly positive, so they gave it a shot. Here's what Grant had to say about the direct delivery process so far. It's been it's been a crazy fun road, really. When we started this venture, we had about 800 followers on our Facebook page, and now we're and that was in May, and right now we're closing in on 6,000 followers on our Facebook page, and which I mean to some small farms that's nothing, but for us to, for that growth that fast, it. it goes to show that people are really grasping the thought of having this service to them and uh, doing the door-to-door -door, it's been a learning curve for everybody and thankfully for our customers they've been so gracious on everything and they really get it with everybody a lot of people working from home uh, for the younger generation that are still working to the more of the retired age people that are buying our products that are usually home anyways they really make a point for their delivery day again it goes back to the communication make sure that they are aware of what kind of what time they can expect the delivery. And it's always the same day each week for based on the zip codes that we service. We're all humans, we make mistakes or mess up once in a while, but um, usually it, it can be fixed pretty readily. And, and everyone's been so nice about everything. We've, we've had, wow, I, honestly, I had never had a complaint that we know of yet anyways. And our, our customer base keeps growing. So I, I'd like to think that we've done pretty well with our Excellent drivers being courteous uh, to the customers. If you want to hear more about Grant's story, visit barntodore.com slash tractor time. You outline an ecological vision of farming in the book that's very different from the green revolution approach to agriculture. In the book, um, you write, the line I take in this book is not against improving agriculture, it's against agricultural improvement. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I suppose I'm referring to a whole tradition of um, essentially top-down, centralised, elite thinking about agriculture, um, kind of an anti-peasant approach, really, that, you know, that we need to improve agriculture with um, high-tech interventions, with more rationalisation of labour, you know, getting people out of farming. Uh, you, you know, there's, uh, throughout the world, there are... Very, tried and trust tried and tested um low impact indigenous agricultural systems that people have developed and there tends to be this you know i call it this this sort of narrative of agricultural improvement um to you know to call that into question get rid of it you know rationalize mechanize uh, marketize so when i say i'm against um agricultural improvement i don't mean um you know we shouldn't be looking to um improve the things we do to to, to rethink things to innovate um but you know innovation is a, is a sort of tricksy word because it's like you know who is innovating to what purpose and, and at a cost to to which people so i guess my vision is much more a, a kind of bottom-up one you know and, and i think Certainly when we think about a low energy, low impact farming system of the future, there's a lot that we can learn um, about the way people have done that in the past in, in low energy, low impact systems. So it's really to try and put aside that whole notion that we've got to be more high tech, you know, we, we've, you know, we've got to be more low labor, you know, just let's just sit a minute with um, some older ways of doing things, you know, so this is not a kind of romantic notion of going back to the past and having to do things exactly as everyone did, you know, exactly as our grandparents did, but to actually be um, open to taking some inspiration from those systems um, and, and, you know, seeing some of the problems that have been caused by the top-down centralised um, agricultural improvement narrative and thinking a bit more about, you know, low-impact, local traditional ways of doing things and how we can learn from those today. And, and what does your small farm f future look like? Um, I mean, I, from reading the book, there are more trees in it. Um, there's a greater diversity of what's being grown. Um, it's not just about corn, wheat, soybeans. Talk a little bit about permaculture and agroforestry. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, certainly in terms of the um, what it looks like on the ground, the agricultural side of it. I mean, I think, you know, I, I talk about what I call the arable corner in the book, where basically there is quite a small number of crops um, globally that are very highly productive of macronutrients, um, energy and protein in particular, and very easily mechanizable and processable and transportable and so yeah wheat corn uh, rice are you know the three big ones uh, one or two other ones as, uh, as well and you know there's nothing wrong with those crops obviously the reason that we grow them in such huge uh, quantities is because they're you know they're doing something for us that, that we want but you know it's problematic um, in, in in various respects. Uh, you know it's not necessarily that great for our health. Um, you know certainly in this country and I think in the U.S. too, we don't eat enough fresh fruit and veg, and that's you know largely because fruit and veg um, yeah is it's harder to kind of industrialize. It's more labor intensive uh, type of cropping. It doesn't really fit so well into the um, you know in, in, into that kind of mechanized top-down ag improvement um, narrative 
you know, trees are a bit of a problem for um, mechanised uh, uh, cropping. You know, you want to have big fields, big machinery, you know, cut labour costs, you know, the, everything about the, the agricultural system tends to, uh, certainly in, in the wealthy countries, tends to push away from paying for labour and towards paying for diesel and machinery, you know, so we tend to have uh, you know, big fields, not very many trees, um, ag surpluses that we then export either to poorer countries or that we use for feeding livestock. So yeah, too, um, too many um, arable sort of uh, uh, macronutrient heavy crops, too much livestock, not enough uh, fresh fruit and veg, not enough trees, um, not enough people in the countryside. So yeah, it's uh, much more of a, of a kind of mixed farming, uh, lay farming, you could say permaculture vision, you know, more gardens, more orchards, more trees, uh, certainly a, a place for arable cropping, certainly a place for livestock, but, you know, we've got to rebalance it, I think. You say in the book that no one wants to turn back the clock to the hard scrabble life of toil that we associate with our small farm past. We do have a deep fear of poverty and physical labor, hard physical labor, which we do associate with the life of a peasant. Talk about our folk memory of peasant farming and how that will influence the possibility of a small farm future. How do we get people to want to be a peasant again? Well, that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> Um, I mean, it, it, it's a funny one because uh, I think part of what the folk memory uh, is about um, is not necessarily about uh, the the hard physical work in farming. I mean, I think maybe in a U.S. context, you know, there's a whole kind of colonial frontier, homesteading, um, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, sort of taming the wilderness kind of thing, and that has all sorts of complex um, resonances with colonialism and, and, and racism and, and so on, but also undoubtedly, um, you know, hard, hard graph pioneering. Um, but I think, you know, part of the folk memory is not so much the hard work as being, um, as, as the lack of autonomy, you know, as, as being a, um, you know, being a peasant is to be under the thumb of an aristocracy, you know, is not to be an autonomous person. And, um, you know, so I, I kind of talk about that in the book that, you know, that, that is a difficult issue that we, that we face in the future. But part of, you know, part of it is about seeking autonomy. And I think, you know, it's interesting in a contemporary context where I think more and more the mainstream world of work and, um, uh, you know, is, is one where people lack autonomy are increasingly being pressured, you know, increasingly precarious employment, you know, high cost housing, low pay low job security. So I think there is a context in which, um, you know, the idea of, uh, of having a garden, having a homestead, producing your own food starts to become more appealing. You know, it can be um, physically exacting. And of course, you know, we're used, to, nobody really in, in wealthy countries now really knows what it's like to be um, uh, to be a low energy, low impact, you know, really self-reliant farmer. So, you know, I'm not trying to belittle that, but I think, you know, that's the context that, that you know, that, that we have to be thinking about this. Um, and, you know, it's partly that, you know, there's an attractive autonomy to it. 
and also it's about producing a, a healthier diet for ourselves. So many, um, uh, so much ill health caused by poor diets and by lack of exercise. And, you know, this is one of the other strange things where we sort of say, well, you know, we don't want this, this hard physical labor on the farm. And yet we do all these sort of Ironman marathons or mountaineering or going to the gym or whatever, you know, so I think uh, there are, you know, there are some contexts in which, well, actually, you know, working out in the garden, uh, growing fruit and veg for ourselves, you know, it's not an unappealing vision, but uh, uh, yeah, and, and it's, it's partly getting at that autonomy, I think, is probably the key hook um, in terms of the way that the present economy is working. But obviously, um, yeah, you know, it's it's a real it's a real fundamental change to what we're used to in terms of how the economy works. So, um, you know, I'm under no illusions that it's um, an easy switch, uh, but it's one that I think more and more people are interested in making. And certainly with the pandemic, um, you know, suddenly people really switched on more to uh, insecure global supply chains. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, where we live, suddenly we got a huge uh, spike in demand for our fruit and veg uh, a lot more interest in people um, doing backyard veg gardening um, you know so there's all of these things are pointing I think uh, towards the possibility of a small farm future um, and you know we just need, really need to sort of take that by the horns and run with it. We do have all these associations with the small farms of our past, particularly here in the U.S. I mean, I think of like Little House on the Prairie and things like that. And I think some people have these associations uh, with patriarchal structures, with a lack of education. Um, that's not what you're arguing for in your book. And, and I was hoping you might be able to contrast the future you envision with the, the past that people envision. I mean, it, that, that it's certainly a, a worry. I mean, it's interesting in a US context, you know, because there's the whole context of agrarian populism, uh, you know, the, the, the People's Party in the late 19th century. Uh, you know, it's not something I know a huge amount about, uh, you know, but obviously populism has become a, a bit of a dirty word in um, in mainstream politics in recent times. But as with most of these political words, it's a very complex one with many different resonances. But certainly, um, you know, in US history, late 19th, early 20th century, there was a kind of progressive movement where people who were based in rural or small town settings, um, you know, they kind of wanted the improvement, you know, of, of modern life that, that um, you know, that, that we've been talking about. They wanted education, they wanted libraries, civic institutions, and they wanted to, you know, scientific learning improvements of various kinds. But, you know, what actually happened in reality was that that became a, a very much a kind of urban movement. You know, we, we were talking earlier about the, the removal of labour, the mechanisation, the industrialization of farming. So that kind of happened, but not in a rural small town context. You know, that got hollowed out. We've had this huge urbanization and a whole set of problems, you know, that we were talking about earlier, energy, climate change, um, uh, you know, um, industrialization and so on. So I think that vision of a, um, of a kind of civic uh, rural and small town life um, is, is, is still there. And it's what I try and tap into in the book. But I'm not trying to pretend there aren't difficulties. I mean, you know, one thing that I argue in the book is that we need to have um, 
a more self-limiting economy. You know, we need to get out of that progress, uh, sorry, the energy begets energy um, thing that you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we need to limit our needs uh, and we need to do that by essentially uh, producing for our households and for our local communities. But there is a danger of patriarchy there. I mean, certainly I think um, the availability of paid work outside the home has been really critical for women to escape patriarchy and to gain, um, you know, to, to, to sort of uh, embark on the road towards equality. So there is a danger um, in this kind of household um, small farm vision that I'm articulating. and I talk about it a little bit in the book. Um, again, you know, I don't think there's any easy answers. There's no magic wand to be waved other than to be aware of that issue and to try and retain, you know, that kind of progressive civic minded, um, you know, that that kind of public sphere, that emphasis on um, on on democracy, on, um, uh, you know, not taking people's status hierarchies um, for granted. And I, I kind of talk about that a bit in the book, the civic Republican tradition. Um, so I think we need to tap into some of those older narratives um, as a way of um, embracing a, um, you know, a more civic small town and, and rural life, but, you know, without, um, uh, without stepping back into, um, you know, some aspects of it that, um, you know, I, I think we'd be better off without. You know, you're, you're making me think about what Isaiah Berlin once characterized as positive liberties and negative liberties. Are you familiar with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I've come across it. I'm not, I'm a bit hazy on, on the details. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's essentially, you know, free freedom to, or freedom from. Right. Right. And, and your book kind of made me think about that a little bit and you know, how we maybe at this point in our history have been thinking more about freedom from than freedom to. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, some one or two the, the the reviews that have come back to me from the book so far have been mostly positive, but one or two people saying, "Well, you know, this it's it's a bit um, implausible. Um, you know, how are we going to create this kind of democratic um, sort of small small farm freedom?" And you know, it's a good question, but it's true. I think of of more or less all progressive visions for the future you know it's it you know how are we going to um retain um uh, a, a sense of freedom how are we going to retain democratic institutions um so you know I, th I think the more that we can um emphasize um uh, kind of personal autonomy creating a personal livelihood and that being um that being a goal for everyone you know not just uh, some subset of the population the easier it will be um but it's you know it, it, it's a conversation that we need to be having and i think you know some of these things you know in in some ways um you, you sort of get the the so-called automation discourse that you know this is all going to be easier because we're going to have machines and low carbon energy that's going to take the hard work out of it you know i don't think that's going to happen but going back to what we were just talking about I don't think hard work, I don't think um, a sense of personal autonomy and creating a livelihood is a negative here. I think it, it, it's a positive, you know, but we do need to be continuing to put it into that civic tradition and not into a narrow, you know, not into a nationalist position, you know, not into a, 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 
uh, a kind of racial or colonial tradition you know that we need to um sort of embrace the um the, the the complexity of the modern world and you know the fact that you know i think i say somewhere in the book that we're all children of a failing modernity you know one in some sense it's a huge disadvantage that most of us don't have um farm backgrounds or rural roots but it, it, the advantage of it is it means that very few people can say well you know i'm a i'm a real local i'm a i'm a real peasant you know we have to we have to kind of make this up as of now together you know we have to step into a different future uh, and we have to do that in all the kind of complexity of the of the existing world small farms divorced from the secure the security of a wider economic safety net or supply chain aren't always associated with resilience in the popular imagination right which may picture instead starvation and deprivation how do you address that yeah i mean uh, there is a chapter in the book called dearth where, where i talk about that i mean i think the reality is that um small farm localism is pretty robust and resilient you know you you have to build it up over time i mean obviously if you know if everyone moved out of london or new york and and tried to set themselves up in a farm right now you know there probably would be uh, uh, some starvation <laughs> going around and you know all the more reason why we need to uh, you know we need to be thinking this through uh now while while we still can um but you know if you look at famines historically they have tended not to be people with secure access to farmland um you know people tend to have um, resilient cropping strategies, um, you know, it, to some extent it goes back to that vision of a more mixed, more sort of permaculture approach where we've got different crops, um, trees, uh, fruit, veg, you know, different things um, um, in our cropping systems and, and, and you can sort of build some resilience and redundancy into the system that way. If you look at most of the big famines that have happened um, historically, certainly in recent times, they have tended to be people without political entitlement. You know, they have occurred. You know, it's not people who live in the big cities because, um, it, you know, the, the, the powers that be tend to look out for them. And it's not people who are living on farms. It, it's kind of poor people without a political voice and without access to land who tend to, 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 to be in the front line of it. So, um, and, and increasingly, you know, there, there is urban hunger, you know, people um, uh, kind of get moved off, you know, get, um, get divested of, of secure access to farmland, uh, uh, you know, are in precarious urban situations, and there's a lot of hunger in, in, in those situations. So, you know, basically, if we build this up over time, if you build a, um, a functioning civic local farm culture with um, good access to farmland, good access to property rights for the majority of people um, over time, uh, you know, it's not um, as problematic as, as you might think. And as I say, you know, famine history teaches us that, um, you know, it's, it's not the small farmers um, that suffer it's um, you know it's the, it's the people um, caught in between, and often it's people who are caught in big global commodity markets. You know, it might be a farmer, small coffee farmer, for example. You know, global coffee prices tank; they don't have enough money to buy the necessities of life. 
you know, the, 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 the last significant famine in England that I mentioned in the book that happened in the uh, 17th century uh, was um, specialist livestock farmers who were, you know, who weren't, who, who were uh, producing for market and got hit by market price. So in many ways, it's the, um, you know, it's the kind of big faceless global market dynamics or big faceless global politics that causes famine, not a kind of small, uh, small scale farming economy. I want to know more about how we implement a small farm future. It's, it's such a radical reshuffling of industrial society. And this might be a good opportunity to talk about rethinking land ownership and right. the idea of property. Yep. How do we implement it? <laughs> if I had the answer, if I had the answer to that, um, uh, you, know. you have some answers, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you know one of the problems. I mean, I talk about it. You know, this is what I, I I talk about in part four of the book. You know, I think we have got into um, this kind of modernist mindset that there is this kind of uh, sort of. Uh, linear progress um you know whether that is coming from a capitalist perspective that you know if everyone um you know um, pursues their own self-interest in the market that will generate benefits for all um or you get a kind of socialist or communist approach that you know the immiseration of the working class is going to lead to a revolution that will institute a, a a more fair and just and productive society and I, I guess I don't really see any of those linear narratives um, really being persuasive anymore. You know, we've got kind of widespread um, systemic failure that we have to reckon with and, uh, and juggle with. And I kind of, you know, in a way, I suppose it's, you could say even it's a sort of permaculture move um, in, in terms of politics in the last part of the book that the, the problem is the solution I mean I think what we're going to have is um, in some ways quite chaotic processes of uh, ruralization and large-scale migration and people are going to have to make things up as they go along I mean I'm, I mentioned Rebecca Solnit's um, book you know her, her interesting phrase a paradise made in hell where she talks about in moments of great crisis um, people are actually quite good at looking out for each other coming together sort of getting food um, you know getting welfare services of course that's easy in a in a short-term crisis what I'm talking about here is a long-term crisis so we have to move beyond you know that kind of immediate self-help and looking out for people and creating longer-term structures and that's where the you know you mentioned property rights or common rights. I mean, I talk about that a fair bit in the book. Um, I think people can be a little bit um, uh, naive or um, uh, about commons or commons-based solutions. Um, and that's where I, in the book I draw on a kind of longer history of looking at, at, at commons. I mean, Eleanor Ostrom's uh, work is quite interesting in that respect in looking at how people create um, ways of working together and how they sometimes fail places in which they work or situations in which they work and ones that they don't and generally I think you know when you look at agricultural history what you find is um, I mean I talk about the elemental commons where things like water or fire risk um, or sometimes 
ways of managing soil and, and territory on a large scale. You know, you can't do that as an individual small scale farmer. So you work with other people, you create a commons around irrigation or fire management, for example. But you tend to work, uh, you know, on your own account or on a household basis um, in terms of gardening or cropping um, because it's easier to um, to sort of manage your work regimen easier to um, intensify and, 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 and sort of manage the day-to-day -day aspects of farming in that way so we need uh, creative and you know when you when you look at um, agricultural history people have come up with all sorts of incredibly creative mixed systems of public private and commons um, organization I mean there's, there's one or two examples I mentioned in the book that's what we need to be doing but you know the great danger with private property is that it concentrates in too few hands you know basically it's like the old Mark Twain adage that um, you know buy land they ain't making it anymore so we need to find ways of keeping land available and and um, cycling through being available um, being widely available for people um, to be small-scale farmers to be you know backyard gardeners uh, or what have you and it's not that difficult to uh, come up with um, economic policy to do that I mean I'm not an economist uh, but you know there's all sorts of things we can talk about um, uh, you know land value tax inheritance tax there's all sorts of ways um, we can we can do that. The the real problem is making it stick politically um, in um, you know in, in in the here and now when we have these powerful modernist narratives. You know whether it's a sort of capitalist um, you know corporate um, sort of model or or a socialist model. And I think we need to ultimately we need to move beyond that. Hopefully, the way we you know we can do that with minimum possible pain through um, yeah, you, you know through the sorts of processes we were talking about earlier, where people are beginning to switch into this kind of local civic way of thinking. But regrettably, I think you know it is going to come through chaos, through um, various shocks to the existing system. You know, we've seen that in um, countries like Argentina and Greece with sort of economic meltdown or with um, natural disasters, climate disasters, you know, it's going to be a, a bumpy ride. But hopefully we can kind of pull all these um, pieces of the jigsaw together and, and start coming up with local solutions with people working together on them. You're clear in the book that a small farm future is not utopian per se, at least not any more utopian than the almost mystical faith that we have in an industrialist capitalist economy that grows and right. expands out into the infinity of space. Talk about utopias of growth and utopias of development. Okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, as we were saying earlier, you know, I think our existing economic, uh, the sort of corporate capitalist model is based on growth. You know, that the kind of system dies if you don't get a return on investment. And, you know, growth is, uh, you know, it's a little bit pathological, you know, when you think about it in terms of biological systems, organisms grow up to a point and then stop growing and lead a kind of mature existence, you know, without growing further. And that's sort of what we need to do. We need to develop, you know, we need to, um, we need our societies to be stimulating opportunities for us to, to learn to work with other people to uh to to develop our skills but we don't need them to grow <laughs> or at least not you know not beyond uh, um, some kind of natural limit 
So that I think is is the challenge um, that we have. And again, I think you know it comes back to um, creating a, you know to, to having a a kind of autonomous, self reliant um, life as a you know as an individual or or as a small community. Um, you know, producing the things that we need in order to get by. Uh, learning, you know, working with other people, learning to get along with other people, developing our skills and knowledge, um, but not kind of barreling past, um, you know, the, the natural limits and the, and the natural feedback of the system. And that incidentally is, is kind of a key uh, justification, a key need for a, a kind of smaller, more localised society because you kind of get feedback. I mean, I'm talking to you through this um, computer in front of me at the moment and I, I have no idea you know um, where the components came from what sorts of systems of uh, of, of production and, um, and and commodity um, chains were part of it whereas the house that I'm sitting in you know I'm heating it with wood that I planted myself um, you know just outside the window and I have a really good sense of what's going on with my wood lot you know how much wood I can harvest uh, you know whether I'm I'm sort of pushing beyond the boundaries of what's sustainable, and so there's that kind of immediate feedback in you know on you know on my farm on my homestead or in my local community about what you know what I can do you know how much I can grow and and you know then you know how much I'm, there's kind of pushback from from the natural world. You don't get that feedback in a kind of global commodity-based system, and that's part of the problem that we've got in the modern world and part of why we need to relocalize so sure you know there's endless ways in which my local community can develop you know friendships i can have walks in the woods um you know things i can learn that's the sort of thing we need to be um uh, working on and, and obviously developing my practice as a farmer you know not growing the global economy not growing um, these sort of huge networks of commodity exchange over which um, you know we have no control as individuals um, or even as national governments anymore um, and you know that have all sorts of negative consequences um, for people you know in terms of exploitation of labor but also on the the, the planet that we call home you sent your book off to the press just as the COVID-19 crisis was taking shape. Right. What has the pandemic revealed to you? Has it challenged your ideas? Has it validated them? That's a good question. I think, you know, I'm slightly nervous to say that it's validated my ideas because, uh, you know, everyone these days is saying, you know, as the pandemic proves. You know? <laughs> but I think, you know, as I, as, as I mentioned earlier, I, it, it, I, it kind of has validated them in the sense that, you know, we've got our, our little local market garden where normally we get sort of one or two customer requests you know new customer requests a week and then all of a sudden with the pandemic you know a mix of things was was going on but it meant that the supermarket shelves were empty particularly of fresh fruit and veg and all of a sudden from like one or two customer requests a week you know we were we, we had about 200 you know we brought a bit more land into cultivation and tried as best we could to um, to grow food for you know vulnerable people in our community um but obviously there was a, you know there was a limit to what we could do but there is that you know there aren't very many people producing fruit and veg locally because the the market doesn't really um encourage it as it presently is and you know that's what we need to work on um, now of course the you know the in the supermarkets would say that it was um, a temporary um, hiccup in supply you know they 
things got figured out, the, the, the shelves refilled. Um, nevertheless, um, you know, I think there was a shot across the bows in many ways of all sorts of um, long, you know, much more challenging longer term interruptions we're going to get to, uh, to, to, to global supply chains in the future. And also, of course, the pandemic itself, you know, part of the problem with it is it spread like wildfire around the world because we are such a um, uh, you know, we're so mobile and, um, you know, same with animal diseases, really. We've got, you know, small local abattoirs have closed down. We've got all these big super abattoirs that make it hard for, for small scale farmers with just a few livestock to, um, uh, to, to, to continue doing things the way they did. And, and you know, um, no doubt the biosecurity in these, you know, high tech modern abattoirs and the whole modern food system is very good but it only takes um yeah, you know a small shock to it where it propagates throughout the system so i think again there's a case for building in more resilience more redundancies more firewalls um you know more uh local um control of supply um to prevent this sort of thing from happening and uh, you know in a sense you know the, the lockdown is is a kind of bad consequence of a of a global system going wrong you know what we need to do is 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 kind of take the lessons from that and create more of a kind of local uh, kind of local interaction and a local civic order that doesn't have that that negative side that we've just you know seen so tragically with the pandemic world leaders are now talking about transforming and rethinking the global economy in the face of the pandemic. And they're acknowledging many of the interlocking crises you outline in the book. Are we finally grappling with reality? I mean, when I think about your small farm future, I sort of imagine it as a plan that's behind a pane of glass that, you know, says break in case of emergency. Are we at that point now? Or, or do, you, do you see us sort of pulling ourselves back from the, the precipice? To be honest, I think we're still in the um, in the lower foothills. Um, I mean, world leaders, you know, world leaders are taking some of these issues seriously. But, you know, climate change, you know, that's a big one that people are now talking about more seriously. But again, the I think the model tends to be a high tech centralized one. You know, here in the UK, it's about building more nuclear power stations, building big offshore wind farms um, and you know we can debate the rights and wrongs of that I mean low carbon energy is better than high carbon energy but there isn't really um, coming from the political centre there isn't really um, a, a, a kind of language of um, greater local resilience or relocalization. I mean I think there are some um, moves afoot you know that there is a sort of conversation about land reform beginning to happen in the UK more in um, some of the um, uh, some of the devolved administrations in Scotland and Wales more than in England you know there are people beginning to um, think about um, farming in some different ways you know less um, sort of productivist uh, commodity farming that subsidized um, uh, financially from the center more uh, um, farming that's looking at, at um, you know providing what people call public goods or you know more nature friendly farming so you know there, there are things afoot but I'm not really seeing it coming from um, world leadership yeah you know uh, 
obviously we've got the new administration coming in in the US, which at least is one that kind of believes that climate change is actually happening. You know, we've got sort of stuff happening in China in terms of um, more carbon friendly policies. But yeah, I think it's, I, I don't really see it coming from the top. I see it coming from, um, you know, bottom up local activism in the context of the, the the shocks that are that are beginning to propagate through the existing system yeah i mean it, there's such a contrast with what you outline in your book and what sort of global world leaders are looking to do which is really in in my view to centralize power right. more and more how do you reconcile those two things or i guess you don't but is that is that the trend you're seeing as well as just a, a focus on more and more authoritarian sort of measures to address global crises? Yeah, I mean, I talk in the book about what I call the supersedure state. I mean, to be honest, I think centralized states, you know, that is the instinct of, of you know, our whole global political system that has emerged over a long period of time, you know, is a very kind of centralized, you know, ramifying network and it's based on cheap and abundant energy um i see that changing and i see centralized political power having to juggle with more and more problems and essentially i think you know there's different ways it can pan out and you know i'd I'd rather not be writing about the future at all because i'm almost certainly going to be wrong (laughs) but i think that's kind of the, the reality that we have to face nowadays is you know we need to be thinking about system change because it surely is going to change um so the supersedure state i talk about in the book is essentially where centralized government you know it's trying to it's got too much on its plate it's trying to take too much from people not giving enough back to people and i think it will start to kind of retreat into its core areas and that is going to be an extremely challenging time and i don't know how it will pan out but one way in which it might pan out which is what we were talking about earlier, is the need for people to create civic institutions locally to figure out, you know, how are we going to produce our energy? How are we going to produce our food? How are we going to um, uh, produce um, peace and, um, and, and, and kind of a civic order locally? You know, we're going to have to get along with each other and produce things for ourselves in ways that, you know, we, we can no longer just expect you know to go down to the supermarket and that the, the government will you know have its um finger on the pulse of some sort of global supply network that's just gonna you know we can just fill our trolleys and uh, fill our carts and go home you know so it's going to be um uh, tough challenging times but that's kind of how i see the most positive possible scenarios playing out and you know it is happening the the, the small town Froome where i live here you know we've got an independent local council that is trying to sort of create better conversations between people locally more autonomy you know get away from this kind of center to locality model you know the democrats or republicans you know um get away from that kind of politics and and get more into a kind of local people having conversations about what they need and how they can get along so i do see you know i do see some positive moves there and and potential but um you know there's a lot of ways in which that can go wrong and and a lot of uh difficulties that you know we're going to need to step up to Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
There you have it. Go buy Chris's book at acresusa.com. We have a bookstore there that has hundreds of titles on regenerative and sustainable and organic farming. Use the coupon code JANPOD, that's J-A-N-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.